It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocows at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. If you have questions about anything you hear about on Radio Cows, please call us at 501-320-5793 or email us at radiocows at cows.org. We'd love to hear from you. Radio Cows and Cows now have a feature called Primary Sources. It focuses on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of but probably want to know about. In addition to what you can hear on Radio Cows, and this is where the Cows service kicks in, check out cows.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. This week's podcast features Roby Brock interviewing John Brummett, a longtime journalist and political columnist. So at some point you, um, you're off to college, you're up in Conway, you get a right. job with the, the log cabin Democrat up there. Mm -hmm. um, were you covering sports for mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. I went from there. I was, here's my history, my academic history, I might as well tell you. Uh, uh, not going to classes and working at the newspaper. That's, that's, that's my <laughs> academic history. And I did that at UA Law. Uh, I remember I went out to take, I was in honors composition as a freshman at UA Law, but I never went to class. And I went to see the professor at the end of the term and I said, is there any way I can maybe pass this? He said, well, here's the final. It was an essay test. I got a I got a B, uh, <laughs> so I I have. Let me just be honest. I had when your first job as a professional journalist is is rewriting another's work, and your local college gives you a B for a class you never went to. I had a hard time taking any of this seriously. I just did. I, I just I just did. So I and I married too young. I married my high school sweetheart. That's what poor kids of fundamentalist upbringing do. They get married too young. lasted three years. But during that time, uh, we moved to Conway because the Law Cabin Democrat, I heard, was a good daily paper, and I could go to school at UCA, and I could work up there. So I was their sports editor for a year or two. You and just got hired as a sports editor? Or did you have no... I went up there to see... John Ward was the managing editor. He had been Winthrop Rockefeller's PR man and an old newsman and a major guy in my life, as we'll maybe get to that. But I went up to see him. They needed a sports editor, and uh, uh, we went to Bob's Grill there in downtown Conway, and I gave him a, spra a scrapbook that my then wife kept of all my articles. And he said, that looks good to me. 
and uh, I became the sports editor covering uh, the UCA Bears, the Hendricks Warriors, the AIC. And as a sports editor of a decent-sized or small-town daily, I could get credentials to the Razorback games. Oh. And so I would sit at War Memorial and go down to the dressing room later, uh, later and, uh, and uh, you know, ask questions of good part. Joe Ferguson and mm-hmm. people like that. John's career began in Conway while he was a student at UCA, in name anyway. I mean, I was covering sports, uh, and this is a small paper. He's got four or five reporters sitting around this, this rim of this slot every day. And, and uh, from time to time, if I get the sports pages out, I'd help with the local stuff. There was a uh, longtime reporter there an institution in Conway, Joe B. McGee, a beloved man. And he had covered city council for decades. But at the time, John Ward, the editor, thought Joe was slowing down a little, and he thought it would be good if somebody else covered the city council and took some of Joe's load discreetly. He also thought, that I could do it because Joe was not going to like being taken off of it, but Joe liked me because I was a sports guy and Joe was an old AIC covering sports guy and we were, uh, we, we were good buddies. So John Ward said, would you like to be a real reporter? He said, covering this stuff is a like, lot like, like, like covering sports. People just don't read it as much. <laughs> well, that had to be appealing to you, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, I think I would. Why? I, I think I would. Were you bored with sports? No, I was just bored in general. So, listen, if, if you're going to look for any pattern of ambition in me, you're not going to find it. <laughs> I, I simply have always been devoid of it. Things just, <laughs> things just happen for me. And you just go with the flow. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, then, this would have been 1976, as it happened, two things happened. Wilbur Mills got in trouble, and there was a congressional seat opening in the second district, and all the candidates from Cal Ledbetter to Jim Guy Tucker, they all came through Conway, and John Ward said, would you like to be our guy who, when they come in here, you interview them and you write about them? Mm -hmm. And I said, heck yeah, that sounds good. That's high profile. And so I did all of that. And then, as it happened, uh, there was great uh, uh, consternation about voter fraud in the area with uh, uh, in Conway, fact, County. Conway County. Sheriff and, uh, Hawkins. Sheriff Hawkins extending down to the Mutt Jones uh, uh, regime in Faulkner County. Circuit Judge Russell Roberts convening grand juries. Ginger Shiras of the Arkansas Gazette was covering it, and John Ward sent me to cover it. And she and I got acquainted, and she told the folks at the Gazette, this, this guy is pretty good. If we ever have an opening here on the Gazette State Desk which they soon did. Eventually, he was faced with a choice and ended up in Little Rock. And meantime, just to be full disclosure, as I cover more politics and more city council and more go to more court hearings and from Russellville to Conway covering this vote fraud thing, I'm going to UCA even less than I was going to, to UALR. Never finished college. Because in July 1977, John Ward called me over and fired me. He fired you mm-hmm. 
How did that go down? He says, and he's now departed, but to his dying day, he said he most certainly did not fire me. But here's what happened. <laughs> Brum, that's what he called me. We're not doing you any good, and you're not doing us any good. Uh, there had been a couple of occasions when I forgot to go to the city council meeting. Oh, it really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there was beer or women yeah, or both? I, 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 yes, <laughs> both. And down the road to uh, Palarm. To, <laughs> That's not far. No, no. Yeah. And I spent... Sody's liquor. Uh, yeah, but also uh, Milam's and Tun's place. Okay. <laughs> I was divorced. That was... I was, you know, anyway, that's... And that's, you were in the newspaper business, I was in the too, newspaper the, business. That drove, so that, that was, it was required that I find the nearest <laughs> liquor I could find. Uh, so I was in a kind of a mess like that. And he said, basically, you're, you're not going to... Uh, you're not doing us any good, and we're not doing you any good. So let's just... Uh, let's just find a way to part ways. And I said, the way I understand is that you're firing me. Well, we're not going to call it that. I said, should I come back tomorrow? He said, not really. <laughs> I, I think it's best we just. So I go back to my little one-room efficiency in the, in the home of the uh, mother of uh, the log cabin publisher, Frank Robbins. And I think, where am I now in my life? And Clay Henry, who was the, succeeded me as sports editor, Orville's son, said uh, uh, that night he said, you got to. Uh, we we got to get you drunk. You know, uh, that's all we knew to do. So that's what we did, which helped me pass out that night. The next day, John Ward calls and says, "All right, here's what I got for you. You're due a couple of days subsequent in Oklahoma City for an interview with Jim Standard of the Daily Oklahoman, and then the day after that, you got an interview with Bob Douglas down at the Arkansas Gazette. That's what he'd done for me." That's pretty generous. It's just a, it's the damnedest thing. Again, you had no ambition. I had no, I, I didn't, I, I thought, I, I wonder if there's a rural garbage route I'm going to be here. Uh, well, I mean, seriously, I mean, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And just to complete, I was going through a time in my life. I go to Oklahoma. I meet with Jim Standard, the managing editor of the Daily Oklahoma, who had Arkansas ties and warden. And he said, okay, you're hired. I fly back to Little Rock. I go see Bob Doug. I say, fine. Thank you, Mr. I fly back to Little Rock, and I realize, oh, yeah, I'm going down to the Gazette tomorrow. But they're not going to hire me. That's the Arkansas Gazette. I don't even know why I'm going down there. I go down there, and they hired me. On the spot? Two-day tryout. Oh, a two-day tryout. Okay. Only tryout they ever had. <laughs> because Ward essentially had told them, this guy is real good, but he's a mess. <laughs> So they decided to put me out there on the state desk and listen to me work the phones and give me things to do and, and give me a two-day tryout. After two days, Bob Douglas called me into his office, and he said, you ready to go to work? I said, yeah. He said, all right. Uh, there's one thing they're making me do now. It's some kind of management stuff, but I've got to ask you one thing. I know, not one thing. I've got to ask you two or three things. It's part of a management guidebook, and he was contemptuous of it. And the only question, only one of the questions I remember is, what do you hope to be doing in five years? <laughs> and he, to his dying day, he told people, 
that the worst job interview answer he ever got was me <laughs> because I said to him, I have no idea. Which was a truthful Which was answer. The, uh, total truth. And so he hired me on the state desk of the Arkansas Gazette in 1977 based on it. What did you do at the Oklahoma job office? Well, that's the, there's a kicker <laughs> to these stories. And this just goes to, I'm 23 years old. Um, been married too young. I'm dropped out of college. I've, I'm, I'm, I've been misbehaving. I've been hired by the Gazette. I worked at the Gazette for a couple of weeks until I realized, oh, crap. I'm supposed to be at the Daily Oklahoma. <laughs> Did you have a start date with them? I don't remember. Oh. I, I called <laughs> Jim Standard, and I said, I, I don't know what to say. He said, uh, don't worry about it, John. Uh, we get the Gazette over here. When I saw your byline on the front page, <laughs> I'm pretty much sure you weren't coming. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'd had a front page story in those two weeks, something That's on the hilarious. stage. That was a portion of an interview with John Brummett, longtime journalist and political columnist on Primary Sources. To hear more of the interview with John Brummett, please visit the Primary Sources podcast at slash podcasts. Two art exhibitions will open at Second Friday Art Night at Butler Center Galleries on Friday, September 9th from 5 to 8 p.m. In the Concordia Gallery, the Akanza Arts Festival will exhibit a pop-up gallery of works from artists in Little Rock and North Little Rock as a preview of the upcoming Akanza Art Festival. In the Underground Gallery, Arkansas members of Studio Art Quilt Associates will display contemporary art quilts. Also, works from the Arkansas League of Artists and pieces from the Cal's permanent collection will be on exhibit. We hope you can drop in tonight during Second Friday Art Night downtown from 5 to 8 p.m. in the Butler Center Galleries with live music and refreshments. For more information, visit butlercenter.org art. People. Places. Things. Ideas. Nouns. Arkansas is literally full of nouns. Some of them are strange and interesting. Some of them are only slightly out of the ordinary, but still very interesting. By their powers combined, we are living, some of us more than others, in bizarre Arkansas. Hi, this is Stuart Fuel. I'm talking with author, Poet, historian, investigator, uh, Mark Spitzer. He has a recent book called Glurk, a Hellbender Odyssey. He's also author of uh, one of my personal favorites, Crypto Arkansas, which we'll talk about later. Welcome, uh, Mark. Thank you, Stuart. So let's talk a little bit about Glurk. It's about the Ozark Hellbender. Tell us a little bit about that animal and why uh, you chose to write about it. Yeah, the well, um, the Ozark hellbender and the eastern hellbender, there's two species of hellbenders. Mm -hmm. They're uh, both uh, North America's largest salamander species, largest amphibians in North America. And I, I just, I'm really into monster, quotation marks, monster research. Um, I'm really interested in, in why people invent monsters, um, 
why we I, I study creatures. Fish are my specialty, especially monster fish uh, like gar, which mm. I research a lot, write books about. And so here I am living in Arkansas, and we've got this species, the hellbender, and it's a sort of monstrous amphibian, uh, very endangered. And I, there was just no way I couldn't research this thing. I mean, it's got a really uh, colorful uh history. There's a lot of folklore about it. The science is pretty fascinating. The linguistics of, of it. Uh, uh, so, you know, and, and also the environmental aspect. I mean, this is a species that is sort of considered a barometer of the health of our uh, ecosystem. And uh, the fact that these uh, hellbenders are going down like crazy and that they may, might not even be here in 30 years um, means that there's something we need to look at in our environment. And uh, there's, we've got some stewardship to take care of or uh, we're going to lose some pretty fascinating creatures, which are part of us mm. and our heritage, our natural heritage. One of the things you said interests you about the, the hellbender is the, the linguistics yeah. of the hellbender. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, so they're, they're, they're called hellbenders. Where did they get that name? Um, uh, and basically, the lore of it says, um, according to Barton, a salamander research who wrote a book in 1812, I believe, um, he wrote the, the Negroes of the South, with the quotation marks around the Negroes. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, were, and I suppose this is around the time of slavery, um, they saw these creatures and, and, um, they were twisting around in the water. They do swim from side to side. And so they got bendy motion and they just look so horrid and so, uh, I don't know, grody that, <laughs> um, the, the, the myth soon occurred that these creatures were trying to bend their way back to hell from which they came. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then there's some other, um, uh, linguistics too. I mean, the there's all sorts of native tribes, um, indigenous tribes to North America who knew of these uh, creatures before the settlers even came over here, and they had names for them. Um, Twek, I believe, was one of them. Yeah. So there's uh, there's all these all sorts of different names for them. Uh, we call them. They have the nickname of snot otter. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, there's a there's a whole poem in in the book. The book is made up of poems, Glurk, uh, and there's a whole poem about the linguistics of hellbenders. So the hellbender is said to look like it's bending its way back to hell, and snot otter is not a particularly positive-sounding name. Right. Um, Why is so much of the linguistics geared toward the negative description rather than positive? People are freaked out by these creatures, you know, which is, I mean, why there's all this hearsay that if you, that they have toxic ooze on them, that, that they'll, they'll bite you, that they'll chase you, you know, it's, it's not uncommon, um, for people to ascribe on, you know, names that are not so glamorous to creatures that they are freaked out by. I see. Yeah. And so any is, that, is any of that true? Do they chase you? Do they emit a toxic? 
Well, they, they do. There is a low level toxicity uh, to their the mucus that they're protected with. Um, and it, you know, it, it can be poisonous to a dog. Um, it's it's not really that toxic for humans, but it is gluey and annoying when you get it on your hands. Um, and I've heard uh, about a guy who once licked one and uh, <laughs> <laughs> spent the next hour like spitting into the river. <laughs> yeah. And, and you described the the hellbender as a barometer mm-hmm. of our ecosystem. Right. Um, what does the hellbender tell us about um, the pollution that's present, right. especially in our uh, aquatic ecosystems right. in Arkansas? So hellbenders live in mountainous regions, and they're going down in, in various areas where roads are going in, where development is going up, where there's dams um, and other man-made canal systems and um, concrete abutments and stuff. But basically, um, there's, there's not fresh water on this planet is becoming more and more scarce. Here in Arkansas, the, the Ozark streams are still pretty clean comparatively when you compare them to other mountain streams in the United States or around the world. The hellbenders are disappearing at an alarming rate. Um, they are our canaries in this coal mine. Um, they are telling us that we, have, we are experiencing water quality issues, not just in the big rivers and the Great Lakes and the oceans, but up in the mountains. I mean, and a lot of this, you know, of course, there's mercury and lead and PCBs mm-hmm. now up in the mountain streams where they didn't used to be. And a lot of this gets into the water through the air through coal-emitting, coal-burning power plants and stuff like that. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in central Arkansas. This is Stuart Fuel. I'm talking with Mark Spitzer. He has a recent book called Glurk, a Hellbender Odyssey. There's other problems in this equation, too. Hellbenders are going down... Because of our messing with the water quality, but there's also um, a couple really dangerous um, viruses or, or, uh, that are going around right now that are wiping out amphibians around the world. One, one of these is called a Raina virus. Um, the other one is called a chytrid fungus. On, on top of right now being decimated by human activity interference in the ecosystem there's there are plagues going around they're just wiping uh amphibians out throughout the world you know this is we're in the middle of a mass extinction actually a lot of people are deny that it's going on or really can't see that it's happening but you know we're experiencing a a sixth sixth mass extinction on this planet right now amphibians of course are always on the front lines of extinctions um when 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 things start going down in a in a chain in a network it's the frogs the newts the the salamanders the toads that always start signaling our our troubles first and you got to see the effects of this virus uh, that's affecting uh, the hellbenders and other uh, other creatures as you were 
researching for this book. Oh you, yeah, you got yeah. to uh, go with some teams who were yeah. who were doing some hellbender research. Right, I went sampling with uh, U, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Arkansas Game and Fish Commission on the Eleven Point River in um, North uh, Eastern Arkansas. We had a hard time finding hellbenders up there every year. They're more and more scarce. Uh, but we finally got one male hellbender, a pretty old one. He looked healthy and strong when we first got him. But then we uh, turned him over to count his toes and take inventory. And he was missing a few toes. They were just rubbed off. Um, this is what the chytrid fungus does to, to, to hellbenders. They lose their toes and they get all bloody and stumpy and... Um, their bones stick out of their hands and their paws and their feet. Um, it affects different amphibians other ways. Uh, frogs, it affects them more through, I, I'm, through their uh, reproductiveness, um, internal organs. For hellbenders, they're sort of the poster boy for uh, amphibious leprosy, in a, in a sense. They're losing their skin. They're losing their digits. I see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you also talked about some of the conservation efforts that are taking place mm. in different places in the United States, universities oh, that are yeah. studying ways to uh, to bring the population of the hellbender back up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, these, these creatures exist. Basically, you can draw a giant triangle from um, the, the Missouri and Arkansas Ozarks up to the bottom of New York State. Um, then maybe down, I don't know, toward Georgia or the Carolinas or somewhere, and then back uh, to Arkansas and Missouri. And in a lot of these mountainous areas, um, the, the hellbenders exist, and I don't know how many states have them, 15, something like that. So there is a, a quarter of the, the book is dedicated to looking at the research and outreach that's going on uh, to preserve these creatures. Um, and there's just a lot going on, like at the St. Louis Zoo in St. Um, Missouri, uh, that's the place where Ozark hellbenders are being reproduced basically in a facility, the Ron Gilner Center for Hellbenders, and then they're being reintroduced into the wild. Similar things are happening in Tennessee for the Eastern hellbenders. And then all these states, New York and Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, they, they've all their zoos and there's aquariums and um, they're they're teaching kids about these. Um, they're we're, we're starting to learn how to, you know, how to reproduce them, uh, propagate the species in labs. And so uh, we're we're putting them back into the wild. Uh, people are dressing up in hellbender mascot <laughs> costumes and you know just sort of spreading the word information is being passed out to farmers and landowners state agencies are working with um, universities there's a lot of manpower going into saving the hellbenders right now and how does it look well uh, it's it's really on the edge i mean it could go either way you know i mean these plagues, these poxes right now could just wipe out everything and and screw things up, or maybe they won't. 
some researchers think you know we that hellbenders might not exist here in 30 years but right now i'm feeling positive because there's a lot of energy being put into um basically educating the public so that um when they encounter these things like some people often catch them by accident when they're just fishing for sunfish or trout or whatever mm-hmm. And um, they don't know what to make of these things, and they're frightened. So a lot of times they get flung on the shore or beaten on the head with, heads with rocks. But the more we can educate the public that the thing to do is to cut the line and let them go, you know, that's these sort of things are becoming more popular, are spreading the word. Signs are going up at canoe launches and stuff like that to, to leave them alone. Fishermen are being asked to, you know, report where they've caught them, if they happen to catch them, stuff like that. I, I think oftentimes it's, you know, two steps forward, one steps back. But I think, you know, and I do think like state agencies are doing a lot with working with landowners to try to keep their cattle out of the water, to um, keep roads from being built next to the water, stuff like that. So because when you have that happen, a lot of sedimentation and siltation gets into the system. These guys need like gravelly bottoms to lay their eggs. And the more silt and sedimentation you have in a system, the harder it is for them to reproduce. So I think we're making slow bit by bit where we're working toward maintaining them, sustaining them. So you say that silt and sediment in the water mm-hmm. negatively affects the hellbender. Um, do you feel that, especially in recent mm-hmm. years, yeah. the expansion of fracking has oh. contributed to the yeah. destruction of their ecosystems? Right. Yeah, I think that, there, that, that that fracking has, mostly through the roads that get built for the, all the trucks that, do, um, that carry the chemicals and stuff, I'm sure that... The, so there's chemical leaks. It, the stuff is getting into the water. The stuff is getting into the air. That it can't be quantified right now. How if chemical leaks are doing so much? But you know, hellbenders basically they breathe through their skin. They've, they've another nickname they have is old lasagna sides because <laughs> they've got these rippling um, riffles of, of flesh along between their legs, basically, on each side of them, looks like lasagna. And they've got these small micro tubes that go uh, through these riffles. And that's what—that's how they breathe. They breathe. And so the more sediment you have in the water, the more stuff they're sucking up and they got to filter through their skin. Um, and they're used to living in crystal clear streams, which mm-hmm. are are now not so crystal clear. There's, you know, with dams and stuff, the water moves slower the water's dirtier. There's a lot less fish in these streams too, um, which is another indicator of water quality. Mark Spitzer, thank you for talking with us about um, Glurk, a hellbender odyssey. You bet, Stuart. Thank you. For Radio Cals, this has been Bizarre Consult.
Tonight, Friday, September the 9th, Arkansas Sounds is proud to present acclaimed Arkansas jazz artist Walter Henderson in concert at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater. Tickets are $10 and are available now at arkansasounds.org and will be available at the door. The Walter Henderson Group, a trumpet-jazz combo, will perform Henderson's original music and jazz favorites. Little Rock native and trumpeter Walter Henderson has worked with musical luminaries such as John Stubblefield, James Leary, Buddy Guy, Jack McDuff, Robert Irving III, Pharaoh Sanders, and Art Porter. A member of the Brazilian jazz pop band Circo Verde, Walter also plays with local bands Amasa Hines, the Funkinites, and the Velvet Kinte Triage. Don't miss acclaimed jazz trumpeter Walter Henderson and his band in concert tonight at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater in downtown Little Rock at 7 p.m. tonight. Tickets for this event are $10 and are available now at arkansasounds.org and at the door. For more information, please visit arkansasounds.org. Hello, I'm Rachel Silva, president of the Pulaski County Historical Society, and I'm here today with Mike Hood to promote our next program on Sunday, September 11th at the Dara Center in the Cal's main library. We'll serve refreshments at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the presentation will begin at 2.30. Mike Hood, civil engineering manager for the city of Little Rock, will highlight Pulaski County firsts including the First Road, First Bridge, First Residence, First Town Site, and more. The program will also feature a display of historic maps, an interactive history quiz, door prizes, and some early baseball trivia. And this event is free and open to the public, but members of Pulaski County Historical Society get special perks. And for one time only, on Sunday, September 11th, Basic membership will cost $10 for any new member who joins during the meeting. Members receive the Pulaski County Historical Society's quarterly journals, electronic newsletters, and event notifications. Now, Mike Hood has been a regular presenter at Pulaski County Historical Society meetings since 2010. Mike, tell us about your next program. Well, my next program is how the Little Rock uh, uh, town and city came to be. Um, I'm going back to, back to the very beginning. I was asked, could you do something on how early streets got their names in downtown? Because my last presentation for the Historical Society dealt with how roads got their name. Who was Ferdinand Canis and Edward Rodney Parham and Weldon Wright? Well, I'm going to cover a little more about how our old town got its names and its uh, places. It's a very interesting story, I thought. As I went through how streets got their names, I realized really it's the story of how Little Rock itself came to be. And it's hard to imagine in this day and age how small Little Rock was, that it was just a tiny little town, a little village on the banks of the Arkansas River at one time with just a handful of settlers. And uh, that goes all the way back to probably about 1812 when the first people started arriving in this area. And, and another thing that struck me as I, I researched this story and, and worked on it was that Little Rock was a wild frontier town at the time. I mean, we, we don't, we'd like to think and romanticize of the Old West after the Civil War. Little Rock came to be after the War of 1812, and it was the wild frontier. 
our first superior court judge, Andrew Scott, ended up having a proclivity towards extreme violent confrontation. For heaven's sakes, he's our superior court judge, the highest judge of the whole of the Arkansas Territory. And what's he do? Gets in a duel with a fellow judge over the sliding of 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 a lady companion over a card game. They row across the river, have a duel, and he shoots the other judge dead. And that's how our town came to be. Now, and he's the namesake of Scott he's Street, right? He's the namesake of uh, Scott Street right here in downtown Little Rock, one of our first named streets. Now, it wasn't all that way, of course. There was plenty of fine citizens. The first mayor was uh, Matthew Cunningham, a doctor. He arrived here at a time when he brought the first woman to the town site. So he was here from the very beginning. Him and his wife gave birth to a child that's credited with possibly being the first child born here. So it went on and on. And there was a lot of interesting characters from history. One thing that struck me especially was we had several outstanding governors. Uh, Our second governor, George Izzard, who's Izzard Street, uh, he come in at a time when everything was disorganized, uh, the treasury was broke. And he worked tirelessly to try to get us on track, to get roads built. And, of course, there was a preoccupation at the time uh, with the Native Americans. Just a few miles outside of Little Rock was the Cherokee boundaries. And uh, the Quapaw still had a claim to land right adjacent to Little Rock. So uh, there was a lot to to do with the question of the Indian territories and uh, how to even get a decent road here. The first road to come through Little Rock was actually uh, called the Military Road, and it went right through the heart of town. We remembered it today as Stagecoach Road, but it connected up with things like Military Road in Benton, uh, a branch of the road to Memphis, Military Road in Jacksonville. Those are early roads, and, and aside from the river travel, that's how people got around in those years. A lot of people probably didn't know that Little Rock was once called Arcopolis. What a name. But a group of land speculators got together and tried to get the jump on getting uh, the capital of Arkansas Territory here at Little Rock. And they picked a name, Arcopolis. Fortunately, it didn't stick. They went back to the original name that was coined by Frenchman Bernard de la Harpe, uh, who, who noticed there was a little rock on the Arkansas River as he went up the river. The first rock he saw on his way up from New Orleans, and that's how we came to be. Mike, tell us about your interest in historic maps. I know any time that I need a historic map, I always go to you. Oh, I've always loved maps, and I have quite a collection of old images. And what's fascinated me from the very beginning when I, I got an interest in history and, I, and I, I became a fan of the Pulaski County Historical Society was those old maps. Uh, the, the first map, I actually made one of where the historic uh, Little Rock, Maumelle, and Western Railroad went. Uh, There was a little bit written about it by a member of the Pulaski County Historical Society, Fred Hanker, about this little old short-line railroad that went through Ferndale, just outside of town and deep into Saline County. Uh, It's hard to imagine at about 1920 that the entire western part of the county was covered in a dense virgin forest of pine and oak. But it was that recent that we were still a wild and uh, country. And so I worked on mapping that old railroad. And in the process, I found lots of other old maps along the way. And I've always been interested in how those places got their names. And there's a lot of old forgotten places out all around Pulaski County. 
So I like to tell the story of those historic places and roads and streets and, and how it all came to be. And tell us about this history quiz. Ah, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. Uh, I got, it's not an original idea. When I go to conventions, sometimes they play trivia. You know, they play kind of a Jeopardy game where everybody guesses little trivia things. So I made a little quiz and let people kind of guess along the way. And then I'll give you the answers and, and tell you why some of the other answers are close but not quite there. <laughs> I love baseball, and I always have, and, and uh, I was fascinated as I researched this story that I come across a reference to baseball in the very early days. Uh, baseball was the, num- I've given away a quiz question, in 1903, the number one spectator sport in all the nation, and Little Rock included, was baseball. And uh, there was a long history of baseball dating to just after the Civil War, Baseball organized baseball first played at City Park, which is the old MacArthur Park. But then their first home grounds was a spot called Jacoby Grove. Jacoby Grove, it ends up, was an old uh, uh, kind of a beer garden done by a Prussian immigrant named Henry Jacoby. And what fascinates me especially about that is that I'm personally acquainted with the fifth generation of Jacobys here in Little Rock. And they gave me a little story about those early years of their family and how the baseball grounds came to be and all about Jacoby Grove. So I'm going to kind of take a side tour there of, of baseball in early Little Rock. Okay, great. And if they do well at the history quiz, there's door prizes to be won. Ah, yes, I thought that would be a nice touch. Now, don't expect too much, but I'm going to have some (laughs) surprises for you. And and maybe you can go ahead and claim an image, an old map image. I'm going to bring lots of maps and lay them out on the table, and you can kind of take a tour of how things used to look like right here in downtown Little Rock. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for coming here today. And again, want to invite everyone to come to the next Pulaski County Historical Society meeting to hear Mike Hood talk about historical firsts for Little Rock and Pulaski County on Sunday, September 11th. The program will begin at 2.30. created by Arkansas artist Galen Hudson will be featured at Second Friday Art Night at Butler Center Galleries tonight from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Galen Hudson graduated from the archaeology program at the University of Arkansas while also taking pottery classes. He opened a home studio in 1986 in his carport and later built a room addition as a studio. His background in archaeology leads him to look to other cultures with their values, materials, and technology for uncharted perspectives in the creative process. Galen is the owner of The Clay Bank, Inc., a pottery supply, equipment, and studio business located in Springdale, Arkansas, which opened in July 2010. His work in the Butler Center Galleries will be available for sale at the event tonight and onward. Also at Second Friday Art Night, Guido and Steve will perform jazz and pop with trumpet and guitar in the galleries. Second Friday Art Night is a monthly opportunity to visit downtown Little Rock's galleries, museums, and businesses for an after-hours gallery walk. Admission to Butler Center Galleries is free and open to the public. We hope you can drop in tonight from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. For more information, visit butlercenter.org art. 
It's time for Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. That's Rex Nelson, who's head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and who writes the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, who's executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council, talking about Arkansas food, festivals, and folks. This week, Rex and Paul pick up their conversation about the Hope Watermelon Festival. We weren't able to go to the Hope Watermelon Festival. I was afraid of the rain. Uh, yeah, you whipped out on me. I don't know how else to say it. I, I had to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I guess they had it. I have to say I didn't oh, see yeah. it. Oh, yeah. No, there was a big story in the Democrat Gazette the next day. In fact, I have, I have devoted uh, a column in the Democrat Gazette to this uh, growing uh, contest we've talked about before between Cave City and, and Hope and now, Hope, who— yeah who now have their festivals on the same weekend. It's like dueling watermelon festivals. Yeah. That's a reason And they're change. so far apart, you can't get to both yeah. of them, so you have to choose one or the other. But, yeah, the, the Hope Watermelon Festival began back in the 1920s, and then uh, they had huge crowds. I, I'm, I'm Like I said, I just did a column on it, so that's why I'm kind of up on the history, having read it. But from 26 through 30, they had huge crowds, 30,000, 40,000 a year. In fact, they would stop the trains, the passenger trains that would come through Hope around noon on the Saturday of the festival and feed everybody ice-cold watermelon on, uh, on the trains. Uh, the governor would come down every year, uh, noted speakers. But then the Great Depression really began to take hold in yeah. Arkansas. Yeah. So they cut the festival out after the 1930 festival, and it actually did not come back until 1977. And there was an old circulation director named Pod Rogers. And I got to know Mr. Rogers when I was a newspaperman down in southwest Arkansas. And Pod made it his mission to promote Hope Watermelons. In fact, he at the, during the Republican commission, uh, convention in Dallas in 1984, my phone rang at about 3 a.m. I thought somebody was dead in the family with the phone ringing at that hour. And it was Pod Rogers. True story. Says, Nelson, I need your help. And I'm thinking, are you in jail? Do you need me to come bail you out? What can I help? No. Nope. He said, I got one of these big melons, almost 200 pounds, and I'm going to take it down here to the Height Regency where they're doing the Today Show live because it was convention week and today was doing the morning show from there. And I'm going to get Willard Scott's attention when he comes in for the show, and he's going to put me on the air. Well, I thought, what a waste of time, but I'm awake now. So <laughs> I got dressed. I went with Pod. We carried this watermelon into this hotel in the middle of the night, sat there. Mr. Rogers was quite the salesman. He screams out at Willard Scott. <laughs> Willard Scott comes over, is so impressed by the melon that, yes, Pod Rogers did get on television. <laughs> Pod was also, as I did my research, he was on the old Smothers Brothers show with Hope Watermelon. He was on the Glenn Campbell Hour. You oh, remember yeah. Glenn Campbell's yeah, short-lived sure. national variety show? He was on that. Of course, Glenn being a southwest Arkansas boy himself from Billstown in Pike County, which is a neighboring county to Hempstead County, very familiar with Hope Watermelons, but he was on there. But anyway, Pod so badgered the Chamber of Commerce that they finally, finally agreed to reinstitute the Watermelon Festival, and now it has been going continuously since 1977. Yeah. 
But there was a long break there from the end of the 30 Festival to 1977 when they actually didn't have a watermelon. They were still known for watermelons, but yeah. they didn't have a watermelon festival. And they were known for the the size, yeah. having the largest watermelon. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Bright family. Uh, Lloyd Bright happened to be one of my biology teachers at Arkadelphia High School, actually, <laughs> from the famous Bright family who were in the Guinness Book of World Records for growing the world's largest watermelon. So they've been going continuously since 77 Cave City started its Watermelon Festival in 1980, so it's been yeah. going since then. But Cave City, they've actually got the little stickers for their farmers right. that say Cave City right. Watermelon. Now, yeah. they've been doing a pretty good job marketing with those smaller, I think, Black Diamond Black Watermelons Diamond. Yep. is what they do up there. That's that's the ones they're most famous for. Uh, but you don't see them as many of those now, mm-hmm. the actual Black Diamonds. Evidently, they're harder to grow and harder to keep or something, but... Uh, there's always a guy on Cantrell. Yes, almost most of the yeah. summer with the Cave City Watermelons. I talked to when we were up Cantaloupes. there for the reunion mm-hmm. and Lynn. They, we stopped at Cave City and got to. And he said, yeah, I've got an old boy that comes up every week. And he said he'll get 600 next week. Yeah. And there, it costs more there. But they were always, I, I don't know how much commercial shipping they did out of Cave City. You know, in my youth, 50s and 60s, Porsche was a big commercial watermelon. I mean, hmm. they would load up the big trucks and haul them all over the country. I uh, only knew that Porsche for happen. the 4th of July picnic, which has gone away. Which has gone away. And that was always the middle of the of the watermelon harvest was, mm-hmm. the, was the Porsche picnic. It sort of and may have been why it started. Um, but I don't think there's any commercial melons grown in Porsche at all. You'll see small little patches that families have. But yeah. Yeah. Used to, I remember uh, there would always be a truck every Saturday full of Cave City melons and people would, uh, you know, treasure them. And we still, uh, we bought two and ate both of them. They were, they're <laughs> good, sweet melons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's are. always been their claim. They may not be the biggest, but they're the sweetest. Well, so. that's the headline I put on the column. Yeah. Bigger or sweeter, question mark. <laughs> Which and do you want? Th- yeah. Thus comes the uh, Hope uh, versus Cave City. Now, according, because, you know, we're getting into the fall now, but a, According to Lloyd Bright, he would tell the stories of uh, the big melons actually often grow late into the fall, actually. And uh, he told a story as a boy of actually sleeping in the field with melons and uh, keeping it wrapped in blankets when they think that (laughs) first frost might uh, come along. But well, uh, I can remember when some of us in the community would slip off in the middle of the night and get out into the watermelon patches at Porsche and just break them open and eat the heart out. I never did that. That would have been sinful activity. Yeah. But I understand some of those ne'er-do-wells from Black Rock. Ah, from the other side of the, the river. The other side of the river would do that. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe next year. Maybe next year it'll I be sunny. Case. You'll feel like making it to one of the watermelon festivals <laughs> <right>. at least. <laughs> You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex Nelson and Paul Austin on Radio Cows and KBF 88.3 Little Rock. Now I did load up. You know, I'm in, I'm invited uh, by groups to kind of make my my Delta barbecue tour. I did load up uh, one day with um, a group that lives here in Little Rock: uh, Gabe Holmstrom, Jordan Johnson, Denver Peacock, Chris Bond of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette for our tour, and we made on that Clarksdale, Mississippi, back to Little Rock trip. We made seven stops in one day, which is pretty good. 
Uh, they we, we started did you get the jumbo. Tell me you did uh, not we, get the jumbos. Uh, well, uh, let me let me work through it. We we started with the required because you know it's required when I go that way because it was my stop every week for four years when I was commuting to Clarksdale. <laughs> the required sausage biscuit yeah. at what is now Max IGA right. in Bisco. Yeah. But it's a store with roots that go back to the 1920s. We've talked about yeah. it on here before. Yeah. So we started there. And then we had um, we had kind of a ringer, I've got to tell you this time, in that Denver had contract uh, contacted well-known Mariana businessman Mark Waldrop, who serves on the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees, to go over early that morning and tell Mr. Jones not oh. to sell out. Oh, You know, part of the excitement is whether the close sign yeah, will be there or open, not when yeah. you get over there. And by 11, it's, it's suspect. Yeah, when Mr. Jones runs out, he closes for the day. And I've been there as early as 10 a.m. and have the close sign. But Mark had made sure. So Mr. Jones at Jones's Barbecue, the James Beard American Classics winner, uh, was waiting on us. And we picked up our sandwiches there. And uh, took him over to Mark's office and ate him there. But here was the thing, Paul, and we have not experienced this over there before. On one side, you had a lady, and Mark said, oh, I've known her all my life, being from Mariana. I said, they're great. But she was selling off the hood of her car little individual pecan pies and individual sweet potato <laughs> Is pies. That right? But she also had various jams, various jellies, pickles. Pickled okra all across the front of the car. It's like the county fair that you could buy. So I bought me some jams and jellies and uh, and uh, bought the pies, which I ate that weekend, uh, one of each. Uh, but then on the other side of the parking lot, I guess they know Jones is the place to be yeah. now, Mariana, was a guy selling cantaloupes and watermelons. Oh, is so that right? It's almost turned into a little farmer's market right there in the parking lot. So Jones was stop number two. Stop number three, uh, Pasquale's was not open, even though it was a Friday. Oh, really? No no tamales in Helena, but we made it over to Clarksdale, and we'd heard about a place called Larry's. First time for me to go to Larry's Tamales. Very, very good. Oh, I'll take really? you the next time we're over there. Yeah. Then we stopped at Abe's Barbecue, yeah. where, as you know, you can Classic. get both barbecue and tamales, and had both there. So that was stop number four. <laughs> I'm trying to keep these all straight in my straight in my head. Uh, Abe's was uh, stop number four. Let me see the biscuit, Jones's, two places in Clarksdale. <laughs> I don't want to leave any out here. And then uh, we began. Oh, yeah, I had left one out. I was thinking we were at five by that. After Jones's, of course, we stopped at Cypress. Corner I wondered about Cypress on Cypress, Highway yeah. One, going which has turned into be a turned out to be a favorite. Oh, great place. So uh, so it was uh, the Sausage Biscuit at Bisco, then Jones's, then Cypress Corner, then two stops in Clarksdale, Mississippi. That's five. And then on the way back, we stopped at Lena's in Duvall's Bluff for yeah, pie. Sure. That was number six. And then, of course, a barbecue sandwich for the road at Craig's <laughs> Craig, that we yeah. ate in the car. That was stop number seven in, a, in less than a 12-hour day. So, that may uh, be the record. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, so seven stops in one day. We did we did not do badly. I regret that one I of those missed nights that. where you eat the tums before you go to bed, <laughs> rather than waiting till three a.m. Yeah. when you wake up. Preemptive strike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that would be hard to beat. Yeah, uh, those seven places. That's for sure. Yeah, those are seven really. So, how good long stops has Larry's there. been there? Is it new or? Uh, Larry's has been there a few years. It was just not on my radar, yeah. so to speak. I talked to Larry. Larry grew up there in the area. Has been making tamales all his life, but 
is actually a trained chef. He was a sous chef at one of the big casino restaurants up in Tunica and decided to come home in Clarksdale and open his own place. And he sells just two things, tamales, and on Fridays and Saturdays, he does sell beef tips. And he was barbecuing them out front on a big smoker, and a lot of people were picking those up to go. Well, on our next to trip to Greenwood, so we have got to stop at this. We, we've driven by, but I've never stopped. Donuts and tamales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting, <laughs> so, interesting uh, Which might be pretty good, a tamale donut. Yeah. I think, I think we need it. to stop at that meat place that's got the pick five or whatever, where yes. you can pick five different kinds of yeah. meat there in Clarkston. Yeah. That's got a good all the one. signs and bring that back. And maybe. who's the old boy that's the state senator or something that has the place? The senator's in, place is in Cleveland, Cleveland which is about yeah. an hour south yeah. on 61. Now, we were through there on the way to Stoneville, and uh, it's known for its soul food cooking. Yeah. Uh, now, for many years, uh, Cleveland was known for a very upscale restaurant uh, named KC's. KC was bought by a Chinese family, and their son came back named Wally Joe, who's one of the top chefs in Memphis, actually, now. Huh. And uh, he had a he had a place that was named Wally Joe's for a while. Now he's at a restaurant called Acre, A-C-R-E, uh, in Memphis. But he, was, he operated his family place back when I worked for DRA, and we would often go down. And it was fine dining in Cleveland, Mississippi, yeah. of all places. Cloth napkins but, and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, everything. <laughs> and had to use the right fork, had to chew with your mouth closed, uh, you know. Now, Rex, yeah. on your barbecue trip, did all of the your people with you, did all of them eat all seven times? Or all really? of them. Really? Partook at every site, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so I was very proud of this group. Yeah. I'm yeah. feeling the pressure now the next time we take a trip. I've yeah. got to figure out the... Absolutely. In fact, we even took a little side trip after we stopped at the Bisco store. Gabe Holmstrom had picked one, had spent one summer as a young man basically building a duck camp over on the banks of the Cache River between Bisco and Beulah. Uh, I'm always reminded when we'd go duck hunting when I worked for Governor Huckabee. Uh, We'd see that sign, how many miles to Beulah, and he said, you know, growing up in the Missionary Baptist Church, when I'd sing about the Beulah land, I never dreamed it was in Prairie County. (laughs) But we were about halfway between Bisco and Beulah, and Gabe said, I think I remember how to get there. And we bounced down this dirt road, and uh, we got close to the house, but there were closed, there was a closed gate. I don't think it was being used as a duck club anymore. I think people were actually living there year Uh, around. Yeah. And what appeared to be pit bulls came out barking at us, so we didn't we didn't venture close any, move on. any closer. Yeah, time look for at a sandwich. It. it was time to get in the car and yeah, head to Jones's for a sandwich at that place. Uh, the the dogs and the uh, the closed gate did kind of did kind of scare us off. You know, I think if we could propose to these uh, restaurants that we uh, enjoy so much that they would have little sliders. So they have like mini barbecues. <laughs> so you wouldn't have to get a whole sandwich. Tasting tour so you could last the whole day, I think. Yeah. Excellent suggestion. Yeah, well, I will tell you that last stop, we did just get a regular size sandwich <laughs> at Craig's. Go with, with the jumbo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so exactly. some, some moderation. And, of course, there's only one size at Jones's because, as you know, it comes on regular white bread, yeah, not right. on a bun. Yeah. Yeah, Slaw sliced white bread. They yeah. don't even ask you what you want on it. You yeah. get this. But uh, I did. Mark had bought it for us, Waldrop Pat. I did come home with some Jones's sauce. Now, the key to that, Mark had saved some empty and washed out uh, water and Coca-Cola bottles. You have to take your own bottle. 
He does not bottle, but he'll pour you some up and sell it to you. <laughs> and then Mark said, you just take an ice pick and put a hole through the top, and that's your John Saul it. shaker. So I've got I've got some at home now. I've just I'm not sure I've got an ice pick at home though. I guess I can use a big knife. Um, and my hole you know, I yeah. think I'm about out of Dixie pigs. I love the Dixie pig sauce. Oh yeah. Well, so, Jones's is very thin very vinegar thin by the same way. Yeah. 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 Very not a thick not a thick tomato sauce at all. But a very thin sauce. You, know, you could have those sandwiches with the vinegar base and then have some of my sister Sherry June's vinegar pie. Mm. You could just have a vinegar meal, couldn't you? Vinegar well, weekend. we're going to have to make another trip back to the Mississippi Delta because I just realized last night that um, I've been trying to be good when I'm not on these trips and <laughs> eat some big salads at home at night. Yeah. But, of course, I've been offsetting the lettuce by slathering it in that Ramalad dressing and that comeback uh, dressing that I brought back from our last trip to Mississippi, and I'm almost out, and it's good stuff. So I've I've got to got to get back over there and get that. That's chewing the fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows with Rex Nelson, head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and the writer of the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Stuart Fuel, John Miller, Chris Stewart, Keeley Wooten, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by John Miller and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.